I'm not sure how many of you prefer hands-on work and how many of you are more interested in mental work, but I'm sure some of you have jobs that require you to do a lot of thinking and some of you have jobs that require you to build things and construct things and figure things out with your hands. But perhaps uh, each of you at some point or another has had the opportunity to clean something up or renovate something or rebuild something, even if it's just shining silverware. When we renovate things, when we fix things up, it can be a long and arduous process. Many years ago, I thought, oh, it'd be cool to learn how to refinish furniture. So I took my grandfather's old dresser. I was probably 14 or 15 and I sanded it down and revarnished it and we had it, I had it in my bedroom for many years. Later on, I rebuilt a couple of old pickup trucks. I did a 1979 GMC half ton and then I jumped on a 1969 C30 Longhorn pickup truck. And for many years, I rebuilt that thing and then I, I drove it about 100 kilometers and it was not comfortable. So I sold it to a guy in the Eastern townships of Quebec. And then on multiple occasions, I've renovated houses. We had some old rental houses years ago and we fixed those all up and sell those. And then I realized, I'm, because I realized I don't like being a landlord, um, having tenants wasn't my thing, but we fixed, kind of fixed and flipped a few houses and that was helpful. And pretty much anything can be fixed or restored if you take the time. It takes effort, it can be arduous, but it's, it's, more, it's kind of like a plug and play. You look at something, it's broken, you take it, you throw it out, you replace it. And you just do that over and over again. And before long, the, the truck is restored or the dresser looks good again, or the, the, the house is, is rebuilt. But when it comes to people, when it comes to seeing people's lives transformed, that, that's a whole different ball game. Trying to talk to someone who's a, an avowed atheist and push them toward Christianity to change their, their worldview, their outlook on life, I mean, that, that's difficult and humanly speaking, seems impossible at times. To take someone who hates Christ, who's, who's anti-Christ, and to see them become a, a flourishing Christian, I mean, that, that's a tall order. It's one thing to fix an object, but it's quite a different thing to fix and restore and renew an entire perspective or outlook on life. And in fact, from a human perspective, it actually is impossible. But the good news is, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't just true, it's transformatively true. It's not just a worldview that answers all the big questions of life and is very livable and makes sense out of life and answers all the big questions. But biblical Christianity ultimately is grounded in the transformative grace of God. And time and time again in history, when God has got a hold of someone and transformed them, amazing and miraculous things happen. In fact, God can literally transform a person in an instant. And he has time and time again through human history. So as we get into Acts chapter nine, we're gonna look at the first 22 verses. What we're going to see here is the, the transformational power of the gospel and how God can even take, and this is where there's great optimism in Christian ministry. God can even take people who are anti-Christ, who are tyrants, who hate the church of Jesus Christ, and through his grace, transform them into followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
In this respect, Acts chapter nine, verses one to 22 is a passage with contrasts in it. We have on one hand, the antichrist behavior of Saul of Tarsus. This man that hated Christ and hated his church, but God invades his life and humbles him and he becomes a diehard servant for God. Now, does this happen to everyone? No, it does not. But when God invades a life, he receives the reward for his suffering. He always accomplishes his purposes. And so when we think about the gospel, we attribute it to God's grace, but we also have a certain holy optimism that if you could think of the person that is the most antichrist in your sphere of influence right now and pray for them, God could actually transform them just like he's transformed many of us. So entering into the text, what I'd like to extract here is four things we need to understand about the gospel. And in order to understand the gospel, we need to understand human nature apart from the gospel. We need to understand the tactics of antichrists. Many of you have probably heard the word antichrist, capital A, but in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, we're told that throughout history, there will be many antichrists. And perhaps some of you would say, yeah, at one point I was overtly anti-Christ and God invaded my life and changed me. So here's what it says in uh, Acts chapter nine. I'm gonna start with verse one. We'll kind of take it in pieces and extract the lessons God has for us. Here's how it starts. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, this is an early description of Christianity. Jesus Christ declares himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. It is a way of life. It is the way to the father. So it was called the way. Men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Paul, known as Saul at this point in the narrative, wants permission he wants authorization through the laws of the land to go and arrest Christians, some of whom would be tried, imprisoned, stoned, put to death, a horrible act. Now in the first century, Damascus was part of the Roman Empire. And more specifically, it was within the boundaries of the Roman province of Judea. Now we think Judea, oh, that's the land of Israel today. But in the Roman times, Judea started in Spain on the west, went all the way across Southern Asia, around through what was known as the Roman area of Palestinia and across the upper portions of North Africa. So it was quite an expansive area. So Jew Jewish people lived outside of what we would now see as the modern boundaries of Israel, up as far away in large groups, even as Damascus, which again is in Syria today. This was before the Islamic conquest. Damascus is largely an Islamic city now. But there were a lot of Jews living in Damascus and a whole bunch of synagogues, teaching outposts where people would gather. And before there were church buildings, when people came out of Judaism and joined the Christian church, they would often still meet in synagogues and they would teach about the Messiah and teach about Jesus Christ and preach the gospel. So it's a wonderful thing to see the, the expansive work of the gospel. Early on, 
it's made its way all the way up to Damascus and beyond. Well, Saul takes issue with this. Saul is an Orthodox Jewish Pharisee and he hates everything to do with Jesus. He hates Jesus himself. He hates Jesus' message. He hates Jesus' claims and he hates Jesus' followers. So he decides that he's gonna take actions into his own hands. And in order to demonstrate how zealously opposed he was to the Christian faith, he decides he's gonna make a little trip up to Damascus. Now keep in mind, keep in mind that Damascus is 270 some odd kilometers from Jerusalem, pre-automobile, pre-planes, pre-trains. You have to walk there. So I jumped on Google Maps and I thought, how long would it take a person to walk from Jerusalem to Damascus? Over 55 hours. So if you walk seven, eight hours a day, you know this is gonna take several days to make it all the way up to Damascus. It would take several days to seek out and arrest various Christians there and then several days to bring them all the way back. So this demonstrates how committed, how fanatical this guy was to stamping out the things of God. He was very committed to, to hatred. He was very committed to stamping out Christianity killing it in its cradle, if you will. And we also know from previous chapters that he'd also been present at the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. So this man was vehemently opposed to the things of God and he would resort to every tactic in the book to try to crush the church. He would arrest Christians, he would stone Christians, he would intimidate Christians, and he would also use the hammer of the law to do so. Now, up until recently in the Christianized West, most of us have probably had a relatively high view of the law. Unlike people maybe growing up in North Korea or various former Soviet bloc countries or Islamic republics, most Westerners historically have had a pretty high view of the law to the point that up until recent generations, we've assumed that if the law says it's right, oh, it must also be right in the eyes of God. And if the law says it's wrong, it must also be wrong in the eyes of God because Western law is historically built off of the Christian faith. In fact, the very idea of being in Western countries, we used to call that Christendom. And the reason why we called Western countries Christendom is because their legal structures and systems were based upon a Judeo-Christian ethic. It doesn't mean that everyone was a Christian, of course. Other religions were practiced and have always been practiced in Western countries. But even people of non-Christian religions would come to Christian countries because they realized there were certain liberties and certain legalities that benefited the whole of society. Well, things have changed in the West. And now our legal systems in large part have been politicized. They've been hijacked by special rights groups and on and on and on. And we've seen that the results of that over the last several years in our own country. So that increasingly Christian people are suspicious and skeptical that the laws of the land will actually uphold their right to worship, for example, or their right to work or their right to raise their own children as they see fit. And it's a good reminder in our present context of this 
issue that has arisen time and time again in history where bad people, antichrist individuals, often have leveraged the law and used it to manipulate as an opportunist, opportunistic opportunity to manipulate people, to punish people, to penalize people, to subject people to their own antichrist ideologies. So we have Saul here understanding that, and he goes in order to justify his behavior. And not only gets the thumbs up from the religious leaders, but also gets letters, legal documents that would enable him to arrest the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just as an aside, a little bit reminder here of the need for us to be familiar with the laws of God from one cover of the Bible to the next. The psalmist says in Psalm 1, verse 2, that the righteous man delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The law of the Lord is always on his mind. It's not just a Sunday morning thing. The law of the Lord affects the way he interacts with his wife, his children, the way he handles his finances, the way he interacts with the broader culture. The law of the Lord blesses us. The law of the Lord brings stability. The law of the Lord brings perspective. The law of the Lord brings hope. The unrighteous, on the other hand, we're told in Proverbs 17, 23, perverts the way of justice. They pervert it. They call right wrong and wrong right, for example. They use it as a hammer to crush the righteous and to reward the evildoer. When from a biblical perspective, the law is supposed to crush the evildoer and reward the righteous. So there's a flip-flop. And Paul uses it to his advantage. So Paul's a pretty bad guy at this point, or Saul, as he's known. But let's just pause for a moment before we find out what happens to him. And I want to go all the way forward to Acts 26. And there we encounter Saul, the Christian, many years later. His name has been changed to Paul. And here's what he says about his former life. So something happens between the opening verses of Acts 9 and Acts 26. Here's what he says. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after having received authority from the high priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme because that was a capital offense. And a raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Then fast forward to verse 21, or verse 22 rather. And so I stand here testifying both the small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. And listen to this declaration. This is many years later. That the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light, both to our people and to the Gentiles. It's like, well, what in the world happened to this guy between Acts 9, 1 and 2 and Acts 26? He goes from being a tyrant, an antichrist, attacking and killing Christians to being an ambassador for Jesus Christ. Well, here's what happened. He encountered grace. The king of heaven interrupted his wickedness. So we see the evil of humanity apart from Christ. And now we need to understand the grace of Christ in our lives. Verse three says, now as he went on his way, 
he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Now, right about this time in the first service, the lights flashed on and went out. I think the guys at the back were playing a little trick on us. And a lot of people, I think, kind of jumped because it was a little startling. But this light from heaven comes down. You can understand that would be startling for, for Saul. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The repetition of the word Saul aids in the emphatic nature of the question. Perhaps you've seen in the Bible instances where Jesus might say, truly, truly, or in the old King James, verily, verily. It's not because God is a stutter. It's because he's trying to emphasize something. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Christians? No, the object of the question is me. Why are you persecuting me? This is notable. And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. Well, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, which is understandable. Hearing the voice, but seeing no one, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So here we have this arrogant hater of Christ encountering Christ and being humbled. Here we have this man that intended to pr proudly prance into Damascus and start arresting Christians, being led by the hand because he'd sustained a visible disability. Here we have this man in all of his pomp and arrogance being humbled. What is noteworthy about this event is that there's no lead up to it. It's not like, you know, Saul was sort of thinking about changing his life. He attended a Billy Graham crusade. He was, you know, part of a men's discipleship group. His grandmother was praying for him. His aunt was praying for him. He was starting to attend Harvest Bible Church and consider the things of Christ. There's no lead up. It's like literally he hates Christ and suddenly he's immediately humbled before Christ. Now, it's not to say that everyone's conversion experience is the same. But what an amazing testimony to the power of God. He's not seeking after God. That is not a prerequisite to salvation, to seek after God. He's opposed to the things of God, but here's one of the prerequisites to salvation. God is seeking after you. God is the divine initiator in the salvation process. And in one astonishing act of sovereign power, he humbles this arrogant sinner by the power of his word and confronts him for his sin against Christ. Now, history is, is littered with antichrists, even into the present. There's all sorts of them in positions of power and authority and running public institutions who use their power and influence to crush Christianity. And they're always sophisticated about it. For example, they talk a lot in our culture, the antichrist of our own age, tolerance. Oh, we want to be tolerant. Well, what I'm noticing is you're tolerant toward every ideology except for biblical Christianity. Except for biblical Christianity. It's like, well, we want, we're going to create a secular nation, a, a, a morally neutral playground. Clearly that's impossible. Someone has to be in charge. And the state has risen to become 
anti-Christ and its laws and edicts and its performance. You see, deep in the unregenerate heart of every man and woman, and this this may offend, but it needs to offend us. Deep within the heart of every unregenerate man or woman is enmity towards God. It's enmity towards God. From the time we're little, we want autonomy, self-governance, self-law. We don't like to be told what to do. Now, I don't like to be told what to do either if it's a bad person telling me what to do. But God is not bad. He's benevolent. And by nature, we push him away. We, we try to usurp his rightful rule. And Christ's question to Saul is informative here when he says, why are you persecuting me? What he actually means is to persecute the people of God is to persecute Christ. The true sheep recognize their master's voice, but this wolf, Saul at the time, this wolf in sheep's clothing and the clothing of a religious Pharisee does not even know who is talking to him. Brothers and sisters, you need to understand one of the biggest lies, one of the biggest lies in Western civilization today is the myth of moral neutrality. It's impossible. No one is morally neutral. You either are pro-Christ or you are anti-Christ. This applies to economics, it applies to politics, it applies to education. You're either pro-Christ, you're anti-Christ. You're either teaching science from a Christian perspective or it's anti-Christ. This is why we look at our public school education systems. They're indoctrination centers for anti-Christ ideology. Doesn't mean that there aren't good Christian people that teach in it, that are trying their best. And I, I talk to many of them. It's very difficult to teach in the public system. But your children subtly and not so subtly are being indoctrinated into antichrist ideologies in our public institutions. Look at our universities. Windsor used to be a Catholic school. Western used to be an Anglican school. McMaster used to be a Baptist college. Toronto was a consortium of an Anglican a Presbyterian and a Catholic school. You walk into class nowadays, you declare yourself to be a biblical Christian, good luck with that. Instead, you're gonna have your professor announcing his allegiance to cultural Marxism, to atheists, to Darwinianism, and on and on and on. The antichrist spirit of our age has hijacked our public institutions, has hijacked our legislative processes, have hijacked the executive branch of government. And unfortunately, there's some naive Christians that still somehow believe that we can live in a spiritually neutral state, that we can somehow dance the dance with the Antichrist and it's all gonna work out well. Well, the, the, the mask has been ripped off and it's clear that that's not possible. What Jesus does to Saul is he humbles him by taking his eyesight, which by the way, is symbolic of his spiritual blindness when exposed to the things of God. And he's led by the hands, which is symbolic of his spiritual lostness into Damascus. He is blind and he is lost. He was before as well, but now it becomes 
physically evident, that he is spiritually blind and he is spiritually lost, which is how I was born apart from Christ, which is how you were born apart from Christ. It's also notable that Saul was an extremely well-educated individual, very well-educated, a, a real intellectual, you could say. Now, God would use later leverage this for his good because Paul became a consummate debater and apologist for Christ, would debate people of all religions in favor of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I wanna highlight the fact that he was very educated. And one of the things we see as a pattern of behavior in the West is that we have all these degrees being handed out. And I have a few of my own, and I know many of you do. We have all these degrees being handed out. But it seems like more often than not, the more degrees you get, the less willing you are to acknowledge God. Have you noticed that? So you, you talk to people in, in, in high positions of academia, very few of them will acknowledge the sovereignty of God or acknowledge the Christian faith. And it's because every education, apart from its foundation or its anchor in Christ, the divine word that brought creation into existence, any education that is detached from Christ is gonna attach its ultimate moral authority to someone else, to some other ideology, to some other person. And more often than not in academics to, to themselves. So that the, the, academia, the academic becomes the ultimate authority on all matters pertaining to their discipline. Saul here is humble. There's nothing wrong with higher education, but we have to be very careful that if our education is unhitched, unhitched from Christ, that it soon becomes unhinged if you catch my drift. Saul is traveling to commit great evil. He's a smart guy, but God gets a hold of him. One of the things I love about the, the word of God is when we can see sort of the before and after pictures of what the person was like before and who they later become. Later on, many, probably about 20 or 30 years later, here's what this intellectual giant who was hell-bent on destroying God's people would say about humanity as a whole in Romans chapter three, verses 10 and 11. Are you ready to be offended? You ready for it? Here's what he says. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. That's what we're like. By nature, we're brats. And I'm throwing myself under the bus too. By nature, we are rebels without a cause. We're punks. And the grand lie of false religion, including false forms of Christianity, is that somehow we can just find our way to God by our own effort. Saul illustrates that even the religious elite cannot discern truth apart from the invading work of God in our lives. And one might think prior to this encounter that Saul would have been quite successful in eradicating Christianity. It was a small group to start with. It was a dozen followers and one of them bailed out. One might think, well, if Saul's been overseeing public executions and stonings and trials, how, how is it possible that Christianity even still exists, much less has made it all the way to Damascus? Well, if Christ was a fraud, it would have been stamped out in the, in the, in the early years. 
Or if, if Christ is the powerful God that, that we believe him to be, another question would be, why didn't he just wipe everybody out in the beginning, including Saul? Well, the reality is, is even though God is a God of wrath and judgment, he is also a God of incredible grace. You know, there's a little song that sometimes gets sung, Amazing Grace. You ever heard of it? Pretty much everybody has, right? But even to call it amazing grace is a bit of an understatement. It's, it's really hard to find words to describe how gracious and loving God is even to sinners like you and I. But Paul experiences that grace. God could have said, enough of your shenanigans, Saul, dead. Instead of light, it could have been a lightning bolt. Right? Instead of being led into Damascus, it could have been led into jail. Let's get rid of this guy. He's, he's hassling me. He's causing a problem. But instead, God chooses to save him, and he saves him for a reason. He saves him to put him on a mission. So let's understand what that mission is. As the narrative progresses, now there was a disciple at Damascus called Ananias. This is different than the Ananias and Sapphira. Those, remember, Ananias and Sapphira were put to death for lying to God. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said, rise and go to the street called Straight, not a particularly creative name for a street. And at the house of Judas, a different Judas than Judas Iscariot, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Well, humanly speaking, you can understand that Ananias is like, what? Did I misunderstand you? Was that a word from the Lord or was it just bad pizza I ate the night before? So he says, he says to God, there's a bit of resistance here, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. It's like, hint, hint, of which I am one. But the Lord assures him, the Lord says to him, go for he is a chosen servant of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And there you have it. Why did God save you? To represent him. To walk in his suffering footsteps. To bring his name, his mission to those around you in thought and word and in deed. And in that process, there's going to be some suffering. You're going to take some blows for it. Well, Ananias is obedient. It says, so Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, I just want you to think about this next word. This guy's a murderer. He has stoned people. He's there to hunt down Christians. Ananias is obviously a little frightened. What's the first thing he says to Saul? Brother. That's, that's, that's grace from Ananias to Saul. He affirms his brotherhood. This is, this is a murderer. But when a person is transformed by the grace of God, guess what happens? Regardless of their background, they become part of the family of God. And there's a special bond between those of us that know the Lord. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. 
But the affirmation doesn't stop there. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you might regain your sight, so that you might truly see and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight and he arose. And the first thing you do when you're saved is you get baptized. He was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. So here is this godly man, Ananias, obviously uncomfortable with his assignment. He comes out of hiding. He risks his own life in order to make his Christianity known to Saul. And Saul then begins his long journey of becoming one of God's choice warriors. Now Saul, Paul, is not going to have a mansion in heaven and you know, the rest of us be consigned to living in little shacks because oh, I'm not Paul. Some people will do public ministry that reaps a lot of fruit. Some people will die in relative obscurity from a human perspective. So your calling is not necessarily his calling and my calling is not necessarily your calling. But when God saves us, he saves us to put us on a mission. And as we are on mission for Christ, we have to not only renounce our old ways, we have to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, by the way, can be given without the laying on of hands. We see that in Acts 2. But here, Ananias lays his hands on him, another act of intimacy, as we discussed last Sunday, to affirm Saul's inclusion in the faith and to confer the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And this is all part of Ananias' ministry. It's part of Saul's new ministry. It helps us to see in Ananias the, the, the dangers and the rewards of ministry. Sometimes we're interacting with people that it's like, man, why am I even talking to this guy? I just can't see any future for him. Surely he would never come to faith in God. Or maybe someone comes to faith in God and you're like, I'm kind of skeptical. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure it's true. I'm not sure God could actually save a person like that. But again, all of this, the actions of Ananias, the actions of Saul, affirm the power of God, the sovereignty of God over our salvation. Not only does this direct vision, by the way, that Saul has of Christ, this encounter, lead to his salvation, but it also, this is really important, it also affirms his later apostolic role. Because one of the fundamental characteristics of an Apostle, apart from, I'm not an apostle, I'm a pastor, but one of the fundamental characteristics of an apostle is to have seen the risen Christ. So this is why Saul is appointed to apostolic office at a later date. The scales fall from his eyes and this man has a new vision and therefore a new mission for life. He's baptized and he eats. And then immediately, he understands this is a brand new Christian. He hasn't been to a discipleship class, just spends a few days with the other disciples. He understands the great commission. Jesus has commissioned us to go into the world and preach the gospel. So here's what he does. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, which is kind of hilarious. The places he was gonna go to arrest people, he starts preaching in them, preaching the gospel in them. 
saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But he still preaches the gospel. Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So there you have it. This man who had a whole lot of training in, in the, the old, what we call now the Old Testament, now uses all his knowledge to prove and to point people to the fact that all, all of that, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, all the way through to Malachi, all points to Jesus. So he's teaching people about Christ in light of what he had learned. Now we know that Saul would later go on to spend several years in advanced training. But here he just right out of the gate starts to preach the gospel. Good reminder, you may be a new Christian. You may not know a lot about the Bible, but you do know something. You do know that you're a sinner who's been saved by the grace of God. You do know that. So it's your responsibility starting on day one after your baptism to proclaim that and to preach that to the world around you. Oh, but I'm not a reverend. Doesn't matter. I didn't go to seminary. Doesn't matter. I'm not very good with my words. Doesn't matter. Say what you know and allow God to use you to lead other people to himself. This is a divine act. You don't go from hating Jesus to worshiping and preaching him in 72 hours apart from a divine work of God. This is a divine work of God. Brothers and sisters, it's a reminder to us that God can change anyone by his power alone. There are some very bad people in our world. We all know that. And we need to call them out when they transgress. But at the same time, we need to believe that if God shows up, he can humble anybody. We need to pray to that end. It's also a great reminder that God can use you regardless of your past. Oh, but if you only knew, <laughs> I get it. We all have sin in our lives. We all have things that we probably wouldn't want to put on a PowerPoint presentation right now for the church to see related to our past. Things we've said, things we've done, places we've gone. But God can use anyone who's humbled before him to do amazing things. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So keep preaching it and keep living it to the glory of God.